Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode of The Conspirators is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're like me, locked away in your bomb shelter with a lone microphone as your only companion, you don't always have time to sit down and read a book. That's where Audible.com comes in. They have an enormous selection of audiobooks read by some of the best voice talent in the world. Everything, including science fiction, love stories, comedies, and my personal favorites, espionage, history, and murder mysteries. Over 180,000 titles available on your favorite audio device. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And now, on with the show. When legendary explorer Marco Polo returned to his home in Venice after spending 24 years away on his epic journey throughout Asia, he found his hometown was at war with neighboring Genoa. Upon his return, he was promptly arrested and thrown in jail, and that's where he remained for the next 30 years. 30 years is a long time to have to find something to do to pass the time, so Marco Polo spent part of his sentence dictating his memoirs of his travels to his cellmate. After his release, those stories were published in the year 1300 as The Travels of Marco Polo, and they quickly became a hit with the public. Polo's manuscript of his time spent in China and India was the first detailed account most Europeans ever had of life in the East. Of course, many historians have pointed out the huge number of exaggerations and flat-out falsehoods the account contains, something that didn't seem to slip by the people of Marco Polo's own era. Back in the 13th and 14th centuries, many Italians referred to the book as Il Melone, the Million, which some historians think might have been a sly reference to the million lies and embellishments found within the manuscript's pages. There's no denying the massive influence the book had on people, though. To many, it was the first glimpse of a world they didn't know existed. Many explorers, including Christopher Columbus, often cited the travels of Marco Polo as their own inspiration for their desire to travel to the Far East. Among the many stories contained within the manuscript's pages is a curious tale from Polo's travels in India. While there, Marco Polo claimed he heard from the locals about a mystical old man of the mountain, who lived in a remote mountain castle with a group of loyal followers who were trained to kill on command. These followers were raised from children learning the art of murder and deception. As a final test, the old man's followers would be presented a golden dagger and sent out to kill a designated individual. They were a small army of stone-cold killers with seemingly magical powers of subterfuge and disguise, able to blend in anywhere and sneak up on a victim completely unaware. If you were unfortunate enough to end up on their hit list, you were as good as dead. One story that gained some popularity about this group was that in order to maintain absolute control over his followers, the old man of the mountain brainwashed them by plying them with copious amounts of hallucinogenic hashish. These hashish men, or hashishin, 
as they came to be known, were feared far and wide throughout the East. Over time, the name Hashishin would be mispronounced by Westerners and evolve into a term we're all familiar with. That word was assassins. I'm Nate Hale reporting to you from a lovely picnic spot on the grassy knoll, and this is The Conspirators. When I say the word assassin, it probably brings to mind a few names. John Wilkes Booth, Mark David Chapman, John Hinckley, and of course, Lee Harvey Oswald. But the history of assassination dates back nearly as long as recorded history. For as long as there has been a ruling class overseeing the common people, there has been a desire by some to gain or maintain power through cold-blooded murder. Whereas I mentioned earlier that Marco Polo's memoir isn't exactly the most reliable historical record to go by, It turns out there is an element of truth to his story of the assassins. There really was an old man in the mountain, and he really did live in a remote mountain fortress. And he even had a large group of devout followers who did some terrible things on his behalf, including murder. His name was Hassan ben Sabah, and he led a tiny Islamic sect called the Nizari Ismaili. Traditionally, throughout the Muslim Empire, the Sunni and Shiite religious sects were the ruling political forces. Hassan believed that his Nizari sect was the one true religion and that they should be the ones in charge. Hassan left his home in Cairo over a dispute between two heirs to the local caliphate. Hassan chose the wrong heir to support and found himself having to flee to Persia after spending a short period in a political prison. In Persia, Hassan found the fortress of Alamut, also known as the Eagle's Nest. Located in the mountains northwest of Tehran, Alamut was an imposing site. Nestled high atop a remote peak with only one near-vertical approach to the fortress, the eagle's nest was nearly impregnable. After moving into his fortress, Hassan began to gather supporters for his new religious movement from the local residents who lived nearby. Using lessons he gained in Cairo, Hassan turned his followers into willing servants, ready to die at his beck and call. As he gained control of fortresses all over Persia, His organization grew into a nation within a nation, pulling strings and exerting political influence throughout the Middle East. One of the key tactics they used would be to go out and assassinate prominent officials in the ruling Shiite and Sunni parties. The historical records are vague, so it's unclear just how many people the Nizari might have killed. For 200 years, they tried murdering their way to the top, but it all came to an abrupt end when they attempted to battle the Mongols in 1256 and lost badly. The Mongols killed many of their numbers and destroyed the eagle's nest. Afterwards, what remained of their group more or less faded into the background. Even today, there are still a few Nizari followers throughout the Middle East, but their numbers remain small and their influence equally so. By the way, although Marco Polo's tale got a lot of information right, there was one crucial piece of information that turned out to be completely wrong. As far as anyone can tell, the Naziri followers never smoked hash and were devoted to sobriety. Which makes sense considering the complexity of some of the deadly missions these men needed to perform. Some historians think the Hashishan title was actually an insult given to them by their enemies. Because so much of what we know of this secretive sect was written by their enemies, it's difficult to separate myth from fact sometimes. 
But the Nazari weren't the only examples of a dedicated guild of assassins throughout history. Ancient Sanskrit records dating back between 340 to 293 BCE tell of a group of young girls called the Vishakanya, or Poison Girls. According to the legend, these young women were raised from an early age on a carefully crafted diet of poisons and antidotes to help them build up a tolerance. Although in many instances the young women died, a few actually became toxic to the touch. Indian royals would deliver the young women to their enemies, allowing them to act as both assassin and murder weapon. In the decades preceding Jerusalem's destruction in the year 70, a splinter group of Jewish zealots became another deadly force to be reckoned with. They were known as the Sakari, which roughly translates to dagger men. These Sakari were devoted to the singular goal of trying to drive the Romans out of Judea. They went about this through an organized campaign of kidnapping and murder. In their time, the Sakari slaughtered hundreds of Roman soldiers, along with their wives and children, in order to prevent the Romans' next generation from maintaining control. In the year 66 AD, the Sakari, along with a number of other prominent Jewish revolutionary groups, laid siege to and managed to temporarily liberate Jerusalem. Although the Romans would soon stage a counterattack and managed to reseize control, but when they attempted to arrest the Sakari involved in the revolution, the group chose to commit suicide rather than accept being captured. In ancient Japan, the ninjas were their own particular brand of assassin, but I think I'll save their story for their own show because, let's face it, ninjas are just cool. Which brings us to India. In the 19th century, India was a much more dangerous place for people of European descent than it is today. It was the dawn of the British occupation, or Raj, and without going into too much detail about the history of the conflict, the British weren't very welcome. Occupying armies seldom are. Disease proved another huge problem for the British. Malaria, cholera, dysentery, and smallpox were rampant and struck down huge numbers of white settlers. But even amidst all the sickness and simmering tension with the Indian people, the death of John Monsall, the son of a wealthy British landowner, was something unusual. Monsall was a lieutenant in the 23rd Native Infantry of the Bengal Army. In October 1812, he set out on horseback from Agra in the northwestern provinces on an inspection visit to the town of Etowah, 75 miles southeast. On his journey, Monsall was accompanied by two Sepoy orderlies and an additional horse that carried the team's belongings and equipment. All three men were armed. Monsall carried a sword and two pistols, while the Sepoys were armed with muskets and bayonets. The ride was torturously hot, but if you live in India, the heat is just part of daily life. Although I imagine it was particularly difficult for the British, who weren't used to such a climate, and had to operate in their full military uniforms at all times. On the second day of their trip, Monsal and his men made camp near the village of Sindus, in a grove often used by travelers. Under the blaze of the hot Indian sun, I'm sure Monsal couldn't wait to strip off his red, broadcloth coat and settle into his tent for the night. But three days later, when neither Monsal nor his men reached Etowah, this became a cause for alarm. The British Army sent a cavalry troop out to look for the men. And although they eventually found Monsal's campsite, what they didn't find were the three men. In the grove, they discovered the ashes of a recent fire, among which they found the charred remains of some official regimental buttons and badges that they were able to identify as belonging to Monsal and the Sepoys. 
The British soldiers presumed Monsell and his men had been murdered, although no bodies were ever found. The soldiers raided the nearby villages and seized a number of people they suspected may have had a hand in Monsell's disappearance. But no one ever admitted to taking part in the crime, nor did anyone offer up any specific individuals. Although, after what I can only presume were some rather intense interrogations, there was a name that a few of the arrested individuals spoke in hushed whispers. It wasn't the name of a single person, though, but a group. A cult, in fact. A cult whose very name inspired fear among the Indian people. The cult of Thuggy. In India, no group has a more deadly reputation than that of the Thuggy. For centuries, this mysterious and ruthless group of bandits and assassins roamed freely throughout India, stealing from and slaughtering anyone and everyone who got in their way. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the Thuggy are the main bad guys in that movie. But the movie is just that, a movie. It's true the Thuggy really did worship the goddess Kali, but the real Thuggy didn't possess magic stones and they never turned people into mindless slaves by magically ripping out their hearts. No, they were much more terrible than that. The real origins of the Thuggy, which translates to the Deceivers, are, appropriately enough, shrouded in mystery. The earliest known reference to the group came from a brief mention by a 14th century historian named Zuad Din Barney, who wrote an account of a group of thugs, and yes, that's where the term comes from, who were captured by a sultan, but ultimately allowed to go free. This was a big mistake. These newly released prisoners vowed to never be captured again. So they began quietly expanding their numbers and insinuating themselves into Indian society. They set up secret hideouts and trained together to become the silent killers the country would grow to know and fear. Over time, the thuggy would close ranks and only allow entry into their world by two means, either through a family connection to an existing member of the group or by proving that you are willing to kill swiftly, quietly, and without emotion. New members were often indoctrinated as children, where they were taught to murder by strangulation from an early age. Strangulation was a signature method of murder by the thuggy. They performed this deed using a length of yellow cloth called a rumal. Typically, the thug would sneak into a victim's bedchambers under cover of darkness while they were sleeping then quickly tie the rumal around the victim's throat and choke them to death. Then, invariably, the thug would relieve the deceased of his possessions. Not only were the thuggy skilled at murder, but they were also highly skilled in disguises and the art of deception. A favorite tactic of the thugs were to disguise themselves as a member of the Indian army or a priest, someone trustworthy who could easily sidle up to an unsuspecting victim. As their reputation grew, the thuggy found themselves in demand by many different groups, including the Indian government, who from time to time wanted certain individuals dead. By the 15th century, the thuggy were the go-to group if you wanted to have someone murdered, something they were paid handsomely for. Over the next 300 years, the thuggy continued to act in secret and with complete impunity. The Guinness Book of World Records claims the thuggy were responsible for 2 million deaths, if you can believe it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To the thuggy, there was nothing morally wrong with what they were doing. They all worship Kali, goddess of time, creation, destruction, and power, even though not all members of the group were even Hindu. Some of their members claim Muslim beliefs. Regardless of their religious background, they all pledged allegiance to Kali. The thugs believed themselves to be spiritual beings carrying out Kali's work. By choosing to strangle their victims, they ensured that no blood was spilled from the body, a key part of their offering to the goddess. They had other strict rules they adhered to as well. They believed it was wrong to steal from someone without murdering them first, and they would not kill a woman or a child. Sometimes, in fact, the newly orphaned children would be taken in and raised to become thuggies themselves. They had their own internal language within the group, as well as their own secret hand signals known only to members. Members who grew old and infirm were given the job of lookout, while the younger members perpetrated the crimes. Children from the group would often be kept at older members' sides in order to avoid suspicions. Without a doubt, the greatest killer to emerge from the cult was Buram Jemadar, better known as Thug Baram. Some historians think he may have been the most prolific serial killer who ever lived. Between 1790 and 1840, Baram claimed to have been present at 931 strangulations. He also confessed to having personally committed 150 of them with his own hands. After John Monsell's death, the British government was finally aware of the threat the thuggy posed and they set about doing something to stop them. Major General Sir William Sleeman was put in charge of the operation. Sleeman built a sophisticated network of investigators and informants to root out every lead they could about the thuggy. He arrested nearly 1,200 individuals with thuggy ties, including Thug Barham, who eventually flipped on his comrades and gave crucial information that helped Sleeman destroy the cult. Improved security for British and Indian merchants made it nearly impossible for the thuggy to operate, and after the British authorities performed a wave of mass executions, including Thug Barham, the group fell apart and faded into obscurity. In the 19th and 20th centuries, several other assassins groups formed with varying degrees of success. In 1884, in the rural south, a political club, the Sarasota Vigilance Committee, was renamed by the New York Times as the Sarasota Assassination Society, for their part in several murders. Still bitter over the South's losing the Civil War, the group demonstrated their hostility to Northerners by murdering a number of tourists. In 1911, a group of 10 Serbian men formed a group known as the Black Hand, whose goal was to stage a campaign of violence and terrorist activities in order to create a unified Serbia. They trained and sent out a number of assassins to perform a series of political murders in order to achieve their goals. One of those people they arranged to die was Archduke Franz Ferdinand, whose death sparked World War I, but more about that later. In the U.S. in the 1930s and 40s, a branch of the National Crime Syndicate was formed that became known as Murder Incorporated. The group was headquartered in the Midnight Rose Candy Store in Brooklyn, New York. Inside was a bank of payphones where a string of hitmen would wait for the phone to ring, with details about their next job. Most of their victims were other mobsters, although occasionally they'd be tasked with taking out a troublesome witness to a crime. It's estimated they may have been responsible for as many as a thousand murders during their heyday. 
Toward the end of World War II, with the Nazis reeling against Allied forces, the senior German military gathered together their own elite murder squad, provocatively named the Werewolves. They were a group of around 5,000 volunteers from the most prominent members of the Hitler Youth and the Waffen-SS. They were trained in sabotage and silent killing, then set loose in territories that had been taken from Nazi control by the Allies. Although there are a few sporadic reports of successful missions performed by the Nazi werewolves, the writing was already on the wall for the entire German army in the waning months of the war. As a result, the werewolves' mission, much like the rest of the German war machine, failed to achieve their ultimate goals. One of the most successful assassination groups to function in the 20th century was the Jewish Nachman, Hebrew for Avengers. If the name didn't tip you off, this was a secretive group of Jewish soldiers and spies whose goal was to hunt down and eradicate as many Nazis as they could get their hands on after the war. No one knows for certain how many Nazis the Nachman killed, nor even precisely how long they were in operation, although it's likely they operated at least into the 1950s. Some rumors about the group stated that their intended goal was to eliminate 6 million Germans, one for every Jew who died in the Holocaust. The group certainly never accomplished that particular goal, but it's estimated they may have killed anywhere from several hundred to a few thousand Nazis during their time. Although each of these assassin groups I've discussed were all highly skilled, and very successful killers to varying degrees, one thing you really can't dismiss amidst all these stories is just how often blind luck and chance played in their success. I mentioned the Black Hand before. They were the group of Serbian separatists looking to bring about a revolution. There's a story about them that illustrates better than any other how the smallest of decisions can change the course of human history. In one tiny instant, events can change so abruptly that it sparks a world war creating a chain of events that would lead to millions of deaths and to the economic calamity for Germany that would put in place the conditions for a former lieutenant named Adolf Hitler to come to power. The Second World War would then lead to the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which would push the world to the brink of nuclear devastation. And it's all because of one wrong turn. As I said before, the Black Hand had been training and setting loose a number of political assassins in their quest to destabilize the current government and allow them to gain Serbian independence. On the morning of June 28, 1914, the Black Hand had encouraged a group of three young men to stake out and murder Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria on the streets of Sarajevo. Although members of the Black Hand would later claim they had a change of heart and attempted to recall the young assassins, it was too late. The young men spread out to a series of predetermined locations along a processional route the Archduke and his wife Sophie were to take in their limousine through the streets of Sarajevo, and they waited to take their shot. But things went wrong and the plan failed. One of these young men was 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, who stormed away from the parade route in frustration, having missed his shot. He was hungry, so he went to Maurice Schiller's cafe to have a sandwich. I like to picture him standing there, stewing in his own frustration, angrily chewing at his sandwich, when something completely unexpected happened. Archduke Ferdinand's driver, Leopold Loika, made a wrong turn. He turned onto Franz Joseph Street, even though he wasn't supposed to be there, turning almost directly into Princip's path. I imagine Princip stood there stunned and slack-jawed for a minute as the opportunity he'd been waiting for literally came driving directly toward him. Loika's eyes met the young assassins, and he knew instantly he'd made a grave mistake. He slammed on the brakes, 
This caused the engine to stall and the gears to lock. This gave Princip the moment he needed to step up and fire into the open car from no more than five feet away. One of his bullets hit the Archduke in the neck. The Archduke's wife Sophie instinctively threw her body across her husband's to shield them. Princip shot them both dead. That one wrong turn would be all the spark that was needed to set off World War I. One wrong turn, and a hundred million people died. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much to my listeners for sticking with me week after week. And just a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Sign up now at audibletrial.com slash theconspirators to get your free 30-day trial, as well as a free audiobook to keep for yourself, just for trying out the service. As always, I encourage you to subscribe and download the show on iTunes. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.